I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Rachel Bovard. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, today we have a Twitter special episode. We're going to start with Rachel, who will talk about Elon Musk's now, it appears, successful bid to take over Twitter. Emily will talk a little bit about how, despite Twitter's failings, we can use Twitter to clean up Silicon Valley. I'll talk a little bit about the broader issue of Musk versus the regime here and some of the potential regulatory fallout. And then last but not least, Josh will take us home by talking about what is to come with Twitter and Elon Musk at the helm. So with that, I will turn it over first to Rachel. So I'm just going to, I think, set the table a little bit for the conversations um, that we're all going to have here in a second. But yes, so we are recording this on a Tuesday. Uh, Yesterday, Monday, it was announced that Twitter is taking over, or I'm sorry, that Twitter has accepted Elon Musk's bid to purchase it and take it private. Um, There's still some things that could go wrong, right? The deal hasn't closed yet. Regulators, there was a segment on CNBC uh, yesterday where I thought the hosts were a little bit too hopeful uh, that the regulators would find a way to block this deal. But uh, for all the information we have today suggests it's moving forward. So what can we expect, you know, based on what Elon Musk has said publicly uh, in the press release announcing the deal yesterday, he basically said he wants to, quote, make the algorithms open source to increase trust defeat the spam bots and authenticate all humans, uh, end quote. Those are just three top line items he named, all of which would tremendously change the way the platform operates. Um, Open sourcing the algorithm to increase trust, I think tells me that he really understands a lot of the consumer and user problems that people have had with Twitter and social media more broadly, Um, you know, not just Twitter, but it's this idea that, you know, oh yes, we have, you know, we have rules, right? And we follow the rules when we completely ban, uh, you know, some users and not others. But in reality, those rules are never explained. They seem very arbitrary. And so open sourcing the algorithm to show people what's under the hood, how these decisions are made, um, you know, I think would, would in fact go a long way uh, to demonstrating you know, rules of the road uh, for for users. Um, banning bots, I think, is also something that a lot of us, you know, have discussed for a while. This is the way in which um, Twitter can sort of be a really difficult place to use when you know the bots swarm you for different sort of controversial views. But I think most interesting about what Elon Musk has said was actually something he said I think before this deal you know was was accepted, which is that he doesn't even care about Twitter as an economic concept, right? He doesn't care about Twitter as a platform for making money, which is you know obviously easier for him to say as the richest man in the world. But you know what does that say about what he recognizes about Twitter, which is the fact that it's you know, it plays an outsized role in our discourse. And he, him recognizing that, I think puts him in a different category of uh, social media ownership um, and leadership than we've, when the, than we've yet seen. Um, so will this revolutionize uh, social media? I, you know, it's, I don't know, right? It could go either way. I have no idea if Musk will save Twitter or not. He's saying a lot of things, though, that I think resonate with people. And even before he's taken um, over the platform, you're already seeing accounts that were banned be let back in. <laughs> so I don't know if that's simply employees sort of responding to you know incentives from the new from the new manager. Uh, we'll see. But I do think you know this is 
a watershed moment. I think Tucker Carlson last night on his show said it was the most politically consequential thing that had happened since Donald Trump's election. That may not be overstating it, uh, given the control that Twitter has over the elite discourse in this country and combine that with the meltdown uh, that a lot of people are having about, oh my gosh, people being able to speak their minds on Twitter. So that's just, I'm, I'm just sort of setting the table about what I think um, are the important sort of features about the, the Elon Musk takeover, but I'm interested to hear kind of what you guys have to say in your specific segments, but also just broadly, I mean, do you think, are, are we putting too much faith in princes uh, here to expect Elon Musk to be able to sort of clean up the whole terrible, terrible shift that social media has brought us? Yeah, I mean, I have so many takes on this. I mean, obviously, it's good that we're spending a whole episode because I think it would be impossible to do this in, in one segment. Um, look, I mean, I, your lattermost question, Rachel, which is the most important one, I think will be kind of a late motif throughout this entire episode if I had to kind of forecast is, yeah, I mean, like, put not by trust in princes, right? I mean, like, it, it is ridiculous that it's fundamentally absurd, frankly, that we are forced to kind of cheer from the sidelines and wish on this, like, vaguely libertarian leaning, but also kind of, like, vaguely pro-Chinese Communist Party, like, mega billionaire, the world's wealthiest man, to privatize a formerly public company so that we can reclaim our free speech rights in what is the modern analog of the, of the town square. It, it's a fundamentally ridiculous situation. Um, having said that, um, you know, I, I assuming that he can reasonably follow through on his vision, and that very much remains to be seen. Um, I don't really know exactly all the details of how Twitter's kind of internal hierarchy works. You have to assume that if you're going to privatize a public company with the CEO having, you know, 100% ownership, that he will be able to do something to implement his vision. So I, I'm cautiously optimistic about that. And assuming that he is, I mean, I don't think it's overstating it to say that, you know, that Elon is basically kind of a hero of the of the, of the Republic right now. Um, you know, I mean, I saw I saw some people on Twitter overstating it. Some people like, oh, greatest living American. That's ridiculous. I, I think Clarence Thomas still gets that title and it's not even particularly close. Let's not overstate it. But what he has done here is, you know, using a modest portion of his you know, astronomical, like hitherto unforeseen net net wealth in a way that could potentially be a role model, right? For like other mega wealthy people who don't just like flush it down the toilet drain and send it to all these kind of performative virtue signaling climate change causes. He's trying to really solve an actual problem and he deserves credit for that. He does. Um, you know, the, the bigger problem obviously of, of Silicon Valley oligarchs and elites kind of controlling our public discourse that's not going away. If anything, it's only exacerbated. Um, you know, I saw our friend Pedro Gonzalez issue a tweet, something along the lines of, you know, this just kind of further proves the point that the only way to beat their elites is with our own elites or at least vaguely aligned elites. Um, so, you know, look, it's going to be really interesting to see like how much he can do as far as changing the culture of Silicon Valley, how, what it means for Twitter internally, what, what Mark Zuckerberg is thinking today. I think it's probably not very good things, to be honest with you. We'll talk about that a little later. Um, but, but before I pass it on, the, the one tangible thing you mentioned that I do want to focus on, the open sourcing is a really big deal. Um, I think a lot of us, you know, Rachel, you and I, when we've like debated like the Robbie Soabs of the world on this topic, that that topic comes up a lot, right? I mean, I personally remember when I've done these big tech debates, I, you know, I, I oftentimes would say like, what are they hiding? I mean, like, let's see like how they're actually making censorship, shadow banning decisions and things like that. That would be a huge step in the right direction to get real transparency. So I guess the, the big takeaways for this first opening segment are for the short term, you know, good for Elon. I really don't think hero of the Republic is overstating it, assuming he's able to follow through. The long term structural problems, though, very much remain. Yeah, so the, I, I guess I have a number of points, which I'll probably hit a lot of them uh, in my segment on kind of Musk versus the regime. But, 
In terms of the hero of the Republic thing, I mean, yeah, it is very sad that we're in a place where it takes billionaires who are on our side to, and we have to champion them. And in this case, of course, even though the state essentially explicitly through the rhetoric revealed by the Biden administration about the pressure that they exert over these companies, the state, of course, should be protecting the First Amendment, given how much the state impacts all of these different platforms. Uh, but we have to rely on, you know, billionaire oligarch-like figures to protect our most fundamental rights. Uh, in some ways, that's sad. I guess some people might view that as a positive thing for the Republic, but uh, I, I find the, the tyrannical aspect of big tech still to be uh, far more winning out than those countering it. Um, you know, one of the things, if we're looking at an analog to Trump, like Tucker raised, is what about the deep state within Twitter? So here you have someone coming into a company where probably 90 plus percent at least of the workforce presumably hates his guts, at least on philosophical grounds. And of course, you know, there were all these memes out there in recent weeks of, you know, Twitter employees, sort of like the, the woman at, at Trump's inauguration speech, um, you know, and they were just going apoplectic over this potential takeover. And I understand that they locked essentially in place the algorithm or the code, as it were, uh, I think specifically so that no one could actually put some additional, I guess, poison pills inside the beast itself. So it's going to be really fascinating to see what Musk does, I think, in terms of personnel, because just like within the federal bureaucracy, personnel is policy. So this, you know, for to some extent, this could serve as a model for what do you do when you overtake an institution hostile to you, where all of the outside actors that impact that institution are also hostile? How does Musk address it? How is Musk going to deal with that onslaught? This may serve as a really good case study, a really good test for what might happen with other institutions to the extent they end up in the hands of folks who are aligned with us. And the last thing I'll say is it is just hilarious to watch all of these media figures who work for massive corporations bankrolled by billionaire individuals or massive asset managers or the like, and they're throwing their hands in the air saying, oh my gosh, Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Got, you know, this oligarch who's going to control speech now, uh, just the, the projection is so blinding with respect to this. And you know that if he's taking flack here from these types of individuals, he is over the target. And so that can only redound to our benefit, I think, the enemies that he has made in this process. So the reason that I uh, waited to speak last is because I think all of this will segue well into uh, my segment, which is next, I believe. But on all of these points, um, what I what I wanted to say is that I do think the the most uh, the the biggest reason for optimism in all of this is not because Twitter really matters all of that much, and that's one of the interesting things about Elon Musk paying forty two billion dollars for it. It was an offer they couldn't refuse because Twitter is not that valuable, right? So it's it's power is totally out of whack with its ability to make profits, right? And those things are totally different, um, but it makes Twitter way more valuable than actually the money it's able to, to generate um, because it's this really public square um, where, you know, you have 
uh, such a concentration of individuals. And so it, it's not about, as we, we just wrap up this block, it's not that like Twitter is the end all be all of political speech, um, but it is an extremely powerful institution because it's where our politics, a huge chunk of our politics have been transferred onto it. We litigate our politics and our culture and our entertainment and our personal relationships. It's called social media on this platform. Um, and, and so that's where even if a small percentage of the country uses Twitter at all, let alone daily, that's where this is sort of relevant. And before I transition to my segment, Rachel, do you have any final thoughts? No, I mean, I think we've hit on a lot of it. I'm interested to talk about the China connections. I'm interested to talk about personnel and how that's going to affect all of this. So let's kick it off. All right. Well, I, I want to pick up on a point that was made, but I think we can dive into it more deeply. Um, this is what I wrote about in The Federalist is that Elon Musk can model some really important behaviors for the rest of Silicon Valley that would, first of all, improve Twitter and second of all, improve other institutions. And so is the woke regime to some extent a house of cards, at least for now, that when you blow on it, it sort of crumbles um, because so many people have been going along to get along. And we know that this idea of you know speech as violence and, and not being able to have mainstream beliefs articulated on particular platforms is not good for debate. It's not good for the health of our discourse and our conversations. Um, but while we still have that muscle memory, I think it's important for people to show um, upcoming generations and people in, in our age group that if this is a better way to do things and you can be liberated, you can do these things, the world will not end, people will not um, be killed by words, it'll all be okay. And so I think on the speech side, Elon Musk can model that behavior. I think on the um, algorithm side, you can publish your algorithms, you can have them open source and your company will be fine. Um, so there's all sort of behaviors uh, that I think Musk can model here. You can stand up to people who complain about the politics of your decision and you will be fine. Uh, there, there just, there's so many different things that when you have somebody who's kind of heterodox, like Elon Musk taking over um, a major institution, I don't know how active he will be in the day to day, but given the amount of money he's put into it, I think it'll probably be a lot. Um, and then there's one other thing I think it's important for him to model. We've talked about this before. It's like conservative sort of championing Parler. Is Parler a great case study in the fact that this Twitter is a monopoly? Absolutely. That is 100% true. Um, is, is Parler mimicking Twitter inherently good? No, because Twitter is not inherently good. And I think Twitter has been an incredibly destructive force. It is a gamification of our politics. We're transferring our politics, our personal lives onto something that functions like a slot machine, literally functions like a slot machine. Um, that's what it does to our dopamine receptors. Like this is an intentional, uh, an intentionally engineered thing. It is their business model. Tristan Harris of The Social Dilemma um, has talked about when he worked for Gmail. It was his, you know, the, they they were trying to get as many people as possible to spend as much time as possible on their email. Um, and that's the business model that Facebook and Twitter and other social networks are predicated on. And I think uh, I haven't heard a peep about this from Elon Musk. And this is sort of what makes me pessimistic. In addition to the China stuff and the, the government subsidies and all of that, um, the Neuralink dystopia stuff. Um, what, what makes me pessimistic, frankly, is the fact that nobody's even talking about the fact that Twitter is 
fundamentally, um, I think a, a, a drain on our society has uh, disrupted and corrupted our politics. And if Elon Musk can model a better way to use Twitter, um, you know, put it in grayscale, do something that doesn't trick our brains into being addicted to um, debating politics uh, on a slot machine, then uh, that will be enormously positive. And this is something that could, again, show other people in the tech space, you can do better. Um, you know, Elon Musk spends a lot of money on Twitter. Even for him, it's a lot of money. And I think that signals he wants to be involved. He wants to make the product better. If he wants to model that behavior for, for his company to make his company better, he can also do it in a way that tells other executives it's okay to forfeit a little bit of profit to be a better company, to be a better, um, a, a better contribution to the society at large. Um, so that's I'm not saying that optimistically, but I'm saying that it's a possibility and it's one that I'd like to see while we're all patting Elon Musk on the back. <laughs> you know, two things that actually make me wonder like if the, if this could actually come to fruition, uh, two things that Musk has said. One is that he wants to open source the algorithm, which I read about this for the Federalist a couple of weeks ago, would allow third parties to actually build filters, right? For users to control their own experience on Twitter. And this is this was what Parler wanted to do, by the way. <laughs> this is something a feature Parler wanted to institute that Apple uh, said, no, you can't be in our store if you do this. Now, Twitter, I think, has a much, much stronger marketing position uh, in, in the social media space to, to fight with Apple on this. But this idea that, yeah, you, you actually let third parties build on your algorithmic content to allow users to control what they want to see. I think that does actually reduce the sort of mental aspect of Twitter, which is this like viral, you know, emotional pot stirring that <laughs> we all undergo by being on Twitter. So more user empowerment, I think, because at the, at the end of the day, Twitter is valuable, right? Speech is valuable, especially the type of speech that occurs on Twitter, which is political speech in a lot of ways. It's how, you know, candidates speak to their voters. Like it does have an in, a, a integral place, I think in particular political speech. So allowing people to control that experience, I think maybe gets to some of the more um, harmful or addictive qualities of Twitter. The second thing that Elon Musk has said, and I mentioned this in my segment, is this idea that he doesn't care about the economic incentives of the platform. That and, and I am totally speculating here, but that suggests that he may be willing to run this as sort of a speech nonprofit. Right? If he's not actually concerned about making money, that flips the entire calculus of social media on its head, which as you point out is built around you know, harvesting user data, clicks, viral content, you know, the way in which Facebook operates, you know, or even Google operates sort of gets removed. And if the entire value proposition of the platform is simply um, you know, the, the speech of its users, that is a new and untested theory. <laughs> in social media, right? Social media says it's all about those things, but at the end of the day, it's not. So if you're removing that profit incentive to commoditize the user, I'm very, very curious where we end up because uh, it could go a long way in addressing some of the things that you raise. Yeah, so it's the latter most thing that I'm actually most interested in. Uh, so like literally, I like, actually like, as we're reporting this, um, you know, it, lo it's, it looks like it's behind a paywall, but so I haven't read it yet. But Curtis Yarvin has written a new piece for Compact Magazine, the new publication, um, you know, founded by Saurabh Mari and our friend Matt Schmitz um, about this. And I just saw a tweet while recording from Matt Schmitz, and this is Curtis Yarvin writing a Compact Magazine, quote, Twitter isn't a money-making corporation like ExxonMobil. It is a power-making corporation like the New York Times or the Ford Foundation. 
that's that's a really interesting comparison, right? And it kind of lends credence to what Rachel was just saying that maybe Elon, who obviously is the world's wealthiest man, to I, I you know I don't, I don't necessarily think he has John D. Rockefeller money, kind of you know accounting for inflation, but certainly the wealthiest man currently in the year 2022. Maybe he really is willing to kind of just accept this as, as like a break-even proposition. Maybe if he sheds a few dollars, maybe he really does view it as like as worth it for the sake of kind of preserving democracy. Or something. I mean, he's a famously inscrutable character, right? I mean, like a lot of these kind of very kind of wealthy mega billionaires. He's sometimes kind of hard to read. It's not always immediately obvious what is really kind of motivating him other than kind of his bottom line financial investments. And, you know, Ben has written prolifically, um, you know, a, a, about his ties to China and all that, which I, I suspect we'll touch on in a future segment. But that is kind of the element of this that I, I think I am most interested in following over the midterm, right, over like the next like six to 12 months or so is, do, do we take him at his word? I mean, like, will he actually kind of put his clout where his mouth is and actually try to make this kind of a genuine place for free speech. I don't know. I mean, I watched Dave Portnoy on Tucker Carlson last night and what Dave Portnoy was saying that if you kind of look at what Elon Musk is saying, it's very difficult to say that he's a particularly kind of ideological person based on all of his statements. He really just seems to kind of believe in kind of just, you know, like live and let live like classical liberalism, libertarianism or whatnot. Um, so if he if that actually is what's motivating him, then I guess we'll kind of see that tangibly speaking in kind of the Twitter user experience. So I don't know. I I, I mean, I, I guess I'm cautiously optimistic. Again, it's, it strikes me as weird that someone would possibly spend, you know, 40 to $50 billion to privatize a public company and then simply kind of not change the status quo. That's the kind of move that you take because you actually want to change something. So if he's willing to run it in kind of like a, a, a in a method that's not necessarily geared towards kind of like short-term financial gains, then all the more power to him. I, I mean, I think it's, it's potentially promising on that front. So I have a couple observations. And first, um, I agree that this could really be an exceptional modeling exercise if Elon Musk applies the principles that he said he purchased Twitter to further and advance. That could be a, a great thing. Um, now, do I think he's going to take the dopamine aspect out of Twitter? Based upon his own usage, from what I can glean from it, I think that he probably loves that aspect of it. Uh, he loves interacting with people in real time on it, clearly, as you see how engaged he's been as he's engaged in this meta exercise of live tweeting his, uh, I guess, sort of non-hostile takeover of the company. So I'm, I'm not as sanguine on that aspect of things, although certainly, you know, a hedge against that or to counter that to Rachel's point, to the extent you can sort of get the toxic nature of the algorithm out by allowing people to self-curate in some respects to a greater degree. That could be a, a positive thing. So I think it's probably going to be a mixed bag there. But one observation, you know, kind of a higher level uh, view on this is, isn't it remarkable if, and, and I think he to some extent might be right here, that Twitter of all things, who owns it and how it operates actually has civilizational consequences. Because that was the word that Elon Musk used. He said that this is basically, he wants Twitter to be an unalloyed good for civilization. And it is remarkable, especially given what a small percentage of people use Twitter in America and globally, that that could be the case. But it speaks to the fact that this is a blue checkmark platform where blue checkmark people live, and they have outsized influence, obviously, over the, ideal, the ideological realm, the cultural realm. And so consequently, even though it's a really small percentage of people largely talking to like-minded people 
in their own echo chambers here. It really does have outsized impact. I'm not sure what that says ultimately about our civilization, that Twitter itself is so substantially influential in all of these ways. Uh, but clearly, I think, and this will segue perfectly into my segment, clearly our regime does view it as such because the backlash that Musk has faced, not only from, it seems like the Washington Post has been on a jihad against Musk over this from the start. I mean, there are multiple articles every day in there attacking him on all manner of grounds, most laughably perhaps of all Jeff Bezos, because it's worth noting that the Washington Post has taken millions of dollars from communist China linked outlets to run a China Daily, I believe, insert within the Washington Post, attacked Musk on grounds of saying, well, Musk has lots of ties to China. And doesn't this maybe give China some leverage over that platform? Well, the same could be said of virtually all of the people, of course, attacking Musk. Now, on the other hand, I share those concerns. I share concerns on, on grounds, forget the political attacks on him. For people who would hold Joe Biden to the same standard as Elon Musk over the China ties, I think they're legitimately arguing in good faith here. And I do think that ought to give us pause about how can Musk proclaim to be so devoted to free speech, but then still do business with communist China and acquiesce to that regime in a whole series of ways. Now, on the other hand, if this really is the free speech platform that he intends it to be, that would work, that would cut against the CCP. And so that would be a positive thing. So the jury is still out. But the backlash that Musk engendered from the likes of the Washington Post and the journalist class, uh, from, to some extent, the regime itself, the ruling regime in terms of, to the extent the SEC and the DOJ and others are actually investigating him, as Charlie Gasparino reported, uh, soon after his initial bid. Uh, and of course, beyond, our entire ruling class essentially is up in arms over this. That tells you that they believe this is this may not be an existential threat to their control over the information sphere, but this is one major platform where influential people operate. And the notion that it can be in the hands of someone averse to them and who actually wants to break their monopoly on the narrative, capital N, I think tells you how significant this potentially is. I also think when you hold this up, and I think we alluded to this in a past episode, you know, alongside, for example, what Ron DeSantis is doing with respect to Disney. This is two instances of people actually averse to the establishment, to the regime, taking it to the regime, fighting them on, on very significant grounds, which could signal potentially future victories uh, at counter-revolutionary measures, essentially. So I think that's really significant. And that's one of the lights in which we should be looking at how Musk approaches this takeover. And then the other point I want to raise, and I'd be interested to hear all of your takes, and particularly because you've talked about this at length, Rachel and Josh, there's been a kind of mixed rhetoric, it seems to me, from the regime of late in terms of their views on censorship, content moderation, the jihad against disinformation, which, you know, as we've spoken about before, I think is really just a euphemism for purging beliefs that challenge the ruling class, uh, trying to silence and stifle dissenters. We saw the intelligence community, several intelligence community officials, several of whom were signatories to the Hunter Biden Russian disinformation laptop letter come out and say that they have concerns about pending big tech regulatory legislation, often on a bipartisan basis in Congress, and that congressional committees ought to review that legislation on national security grounds. On the other hand, we've seen the Biden administration, Jen Psaki recently speak favorably to some extent, and she, she did this very vaguely, 
to some of that pending legislation, including broaching the potentially Section 230 challenges. And then we've also had Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and others out there talking about the need to regulate disinformation, so-called, on these platforms. So it seems to me there's kind of a mixed message from the regime in terms of the intelligence community coming out seemingly against some of this legislation, then the Biden administration on the other side of it. I'm curious what you make of kind of how the regime is going to fight back from a regulatory and legal perspective. And obviously they can't just target Twitter because that would fail, I think, in any legal sort of context. But where do we think this shakes out in terms of the counter response from the regime that we're about to see? Well, I think there's been a, a, a noticeable shift in you know the narrative from, oh, these are private companies. They can do whatever they want to like, oh my gosh, we have to like regulate speech in order to save the country. Um, and I think this was most noticeable with Barack Obama's recent speech on this issue, where he called himself pretty close to a free speech absolutist, while at the same time saying like, oh, no, we have to regulate all these platforms. Like, it's just the, the sort of intellectual incoherence on this point reveals the agenda underlying it, which is really kind of a terrifying like shift in this country where we used to really all sort of celebrate this idea of, of free speech. And, you know, when I say that, I'm not talking about this like very narrow legal definition that I think a lot of people love to get wrapped up in about what private companies can do and, you know, what's available, you know, what, what you can do in the, under the first amendment. I'm talking more broadly about free speech as Americans have always understood it, which is the ability to just speak into the public square, uh, you know, not not refuse pushback, but not be punished commercially, socially, and otherwise for it. That's sort of the debate, you know, how Americans have always understood free speech to operate. That consensus is gone. And that's a really shocking development, I think, um, especially for people on the left who, you know, back when the ACLU was a respectable organization, really went to lengths to defend this principle. That is all shattered and gone. Um, so I do think, you know, the mask is off. You know, we, we've talked about on this podcast ad nauseum about how about the, the mask, we think the mask has been off on this for a long time, but now you're really seeing it. So I do think that there's going to be, you know, a regulatory effort. I think there's going to be an investigatory effort. I think, you know, all kinds of things are going to be thrown, not just at Elon Musk, but, you know, I think it's also a warning to any social media owner, right? It's that you get crosswise on us. Uh, the, the hammer of, uh, government will fall on you for our specific ideological agenda. So the, we're we're just beginning this. Uh, we're, or maybe we're at a new phase where what was a, a covert war is now an overt war, and we're about to see uh, all of this in the light of day, which is frankly terrifying. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that just like the entire category of hate speech, which is something that I feel like the left was talking about maybe four or five years ago, kind of died down. I, feel like, I just feel like I haven't heard about it as often over the past maybe couple of years. Maybe I feel like hate speech kind of reached like its zenith as far as like its percentage of the discourse kind of around the time that like Russia Gate and all the Russian bots were kind of gaining steam back in 2016, 2017. So I feel like we're about to see kind of a revival of this idea that hate speech is like a great moral imperative and that we have to kind of crack down on it and ban it at all costs whatsoever. I mean, Rachel mentioned Barack Obama's recent comments. Um, I, I was browsing a newsletter this morning, and I saw that Jonathan Greenblatt, the Democratic Party partisan hack who currently runs the formerly great and now deeply corrupt organization known as the Anti-Defamation League, um, had some statement where he basically said that, oh, this doesn't portend well because there's way too much misinformation out there and like there's way too much hate speech and extremists and you know it is counter to democracy to allow for all these clashing opinions. 
Um, you know, I mean, look, I mean, we, we've seen that take time and time again over the past few weeks, right? I mean, Max Boot had this just utterly hilarious, I mean, like completely non-self-aware tweet a couple of years ago, basically saying that, you know, the way to defend democracy, right, is by cracking down on people's right to kind of voice their opinions. Look, I mean, I'm actually, in theory, I talked about this on previous podcasts, in theory, you know, like kind of Michael Knowles and some of our other friends, I'm actually not a free speech absolutist in theory. But in, in, in practice, what that amounts to, obviously, given the current situation, is that our hand has been effectively forced to, to plead for our very existence. When you have kind of a, a, a sense of arbiters, whether legislators, jurors, constitutional, uh, you know, constitutionally informed, natural law, literate people in general, then the idea of kind of cracking down on free speech absolutism is probably appealing as a matter of kind of a more a, a comedy-driven public square. But we don't have that. You know, if there's any theme that runs across all of our podcasts, all the rules are broken right now. We are kind of in a post liberal society, right? I think people on the right are solely kind of waking up to that realization. And the only way right right now whatsoever to make sure that we are not totally subjugated is to kind of plead for something closely approximating free speech absolutism, or at least kind of First Amendment protected speech, even on putatively private platforms. That seems to be what Elon Musk wants. So, you know, let's see if he can deliver, obviously. It's always helpful to I guess, keep in mind that there are a generation or there is a generation of people coming up behind. It's like, think of all the folks involved in this negotiation with Twitter. Um, you, you have Elon Musk, who I assume is an Xer. Um, yeah, he's 50. So he's Gen X. Um, <clears throat> and you have a whole lot of millennial employees. And the, even the sort of user base of Twitter is probably mostly millennial. I don't know that for sure, but it's probably millennial Xer and boomer. Um, and so all of these people involved in the negotiations um, lived some of their lives without smartphones uh, and, and lived some of their lives uh, before Twitter. And what we have, or before Instagram or Facebook or, or TikTok, whatever. Um, and I mean, their their sentient lives or their lives as uh, people who, who sort of remember uh, what it was like. And so for all of this talk, um, it's it's really sort of hard for me to to think about where this goes without knowing how this affects you know all of the the people who are going to take the the seats at these negotiating tables in the years ahead because they have been conditioned not to think truth doesn't exist so much as to think that truth is relative um, and so when you're asking if people are really sincere when they say I am a man if they're a woman. The answer is yes. Like actually a lot of them, if you read what they write and you talk to them, a lot of millennials and, and Xers and boomers will say, okay, okay, okay. But if you are conditioned your entire life to believe truth is relative, you actually are sincere and you say, yeah, of course, because what is a man? Uh, a man is what I say is a man and I am a man. Um, and that's why I'm in the locker room and there are no different concerns about it, blah, blah, blah. So all this is to say, um, you know, that's my primary concern is where it goes with the next generation and how Musk can sort of model better behavior um, while there is still enough time to show, listen, there is a better way. Uh, you know, it's, we can't just have Jordan Peterson out there um, telling people truth is not relative and that you should get married and believe in God, et cetera, et cetera. We have to have other institutions joining in on the fun. Um, so that's kind of how I've been thinking about this. All right. Yeah. So that's a good transition then to what we do from here, or what we observe from here and what this whole kind of situation in Silicon Valley, free speech, social media, all that looks like going forward. So some things that we've touched on already, some things that I want to kind of touch on for the first time. 
Um, one of which is, I can't remember who, I think it was Emily or Rachel alluded to the notion that it seems like the left all of a sudden, you know, it kind of like the libertarian leaning left even, who for years and years kind of screeched private platforms, free speech, whatever, now seem to kind of agree with kind of the thrust of kind of the you know, a nationalist, populist, whatever kind of line on the big on the big tech issue that these are kind of fundamentally kind of public function, kind of common carrier esque companies. So it'd be really interesting to see, I think, going forward, what, if anything, kind of tangibly speaking, whether at kind of a legislative level or potentially even actually a jurisprudential level. I mean, don't don't forget that it was Clarence Thomas who, you know, over a year ago in the Biden versus Nine First Amendment case by himself, he wasn't joined by anyone at the time, kind of floated the idea of common carrier regulation. I, I kind of wonder, honestly, if a similar case were to come across the Supreme Court's docket, whether maybe even like a far left hack, like a Sotomayor, would maybe be kind of inclined to sign on to that language now? Probably not, but you never know. I mean, I, I, you know, a lot of these people, I think, actually do kind of follow the news cycle and like the meltdown on the left as far as what Elon Musk is doing really is real. Um, kind of looking at the political calendar, you know, we have basically a few more months until kind of the August recess in advance of the fall 2022 midterm elections. So if there's going to be kind of any time for big tech legislation to happen, it's really got to happen over the next few months. Um, you know, uh, some of our friends like Mike Davis at an Internet Accountability Project are really trying to kind of push now that make kind of emphasize this message that now is the time for bipartisan antitrust reform. Twitter, obviously, um, especially now that it's in private hands, is, is you know is not exactly kind of a paradigm for 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 the need for antitrust the same way that a lot of these other tech companies are. But I do wonder, even on that issue on Section two hundred and thirty, whether kind of we're going to see some sort of you know some sort of spotlight shined on them simply by dint of the fact that Elon Musk and Twitter kind of is the story of the month and in many ways kind of uh, you know like we said earlier, in many ways kind of is the biggest development for the public space in general quite possibly really since Joe Biden um, was sworn into the into office over a year ago. Um, yeah, so just a few other things then in general here, you know, I, I also thought, I mean, from like a business perspective, from like a kind of like a corporate kind of Bloomberg Wall Street Journal perspective, not necessarily the focus of this particular podcast, but, you know, it, we, we, we have this idea that kind of these small private companies, they get kind of their venture capital funding, their private equity stuff, and then kind of their go public. That's like their big celebration day. All the early investors kind of get rich, blah, blah, blah. Everyone goes home happy. That's the more common tale. A less common tale, obviously, is when kind of a, a, a massive mega billionaire chooses to privatize a public company. Twitter for years, you know, failed to, to meet kind of Wall Street earnings estimates. It was kind of an infamously kind of mismanaged, poorly run company. So I wonder from kind of a pure kind of like Financial Times, Wall Street Journal e perspective, whether that's going to be a story to watch here as to whether or not Elon's trying to, you know, he might be set, setting a trend where kind of more public companies might be more open in the future to kind of these massive people trying to come in to buy it. Um, so, you know, those are just like a few ideas there. I mean, and, and, and the last idea I'll touch on, then I'll throw it open for discussion is the other thing, and Emily touched on this a little bit in her segment, is the way that this will affect Mark Zuckerberg, right, and the other kind of uh, Silicon Valley oligarchs. I mean, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, right, and you see Elon Musk, who seems to, who's acquiring this company and kind of a, a, a an avowedly pro-free speech message, at least in theory, again, uh, we, we have no reason right now to, to doubt his motives, but that, that's, that's what he's saying. If you're Mark Zuckerberg, what are you thinking? I mean, can you continue to actually ban and censor like the stories at the current rate that you're doing it? Are you worried that you're going to lose market share? I don't know. I mean, I, all these are, are totally open questions right now. So, uh, you know, I'd be curious if any of you guys have thoughts on any of those questions. Yeah, I'd love to jump in on that question because I think that's, uh, and this is sort of a, a more uh, granular element of this this big picture story. 
But I really think that's true. If you're Mark Zuckerberg or if you're anybody in the tech industry and you see Elon Musk charging full steam ahead with this idea about neutrality in the public square and potentially as Rachel floated in Bright, which I thought was super interesting, exploring something that might look like the most expensive nonprofit acquisition ever, uh, but <laughs> exploring something like that uh, where you're running this as a public good um, really, really, really interesting. And even just the concept of neutrality because content moderation has bogged Silicon Valley, just about every social network down um, for years now in these fights that they are not equipped. These, these battles, they are not equipped to fight. Mark Zuckerberg has even said it himself and that's why he tries to punt to regulators. They do not want to be in the content moderation business except for half of the employees that desperately do want them to be in the content moderation business. And so that's been its own tug of war. And so if Elon Musk can, can come into Twitter and just say, listen, you can be a, you can be as liberal as you want. You can be whatever pronoun you want. You can do it, but we're gonna have every view represented on the site. Um, and yeah, that might mean Alex Jones comes back. Yeah, that might mean Donald Trump comes back. Keep your heads down. And it's just an it's it's just sort of returning to a prior norm. People want it. The backlash won't be as real as it seems. Keep your heads down. It's we're going to be a better company. We're going to do better. Uh, people are going to like the platform better, and we can get rid of all of this, almost all of this content moderation nonsense. Your life will be easier, and the company will be better off for it. Um, I feel like actually a lot of the Zuckerbergs of the world are looking at that and saying, huh. Uh, maybe this is a good thing because Elon Musk can demonstrate, you know, that this is just a better way to do it. And advertisers were originally the problem. They said they didn't want their content to be next to an Alex Jones tweet. And I think that'll still be a problem. But I also think there are advertisers who are willing to, um, especially if Twitter becomes such a spectacle, um, are, are still willing to advertise on there. And as we just sort of settle down and rediscover the norm of sort of neutrality in the public square, uh, relative neutrality in the public square, we can all just take a deep breath. That also sounds overly optimistic, but there is a way um, that, that, is, that that's possible. Um, and, and so I think Josh's question is extremely, extremely interesting. One element that we have sort of danced around but not addressed directly is the China debate. You know, you have Elon Musk who is entangled in China um, with Tesla, you know, with some of his other companies. And what's interesting, it kind of is the same discussion a little bit as the speech question, like, will this pressure other companies? Well, you have a lot of people who are like opposed to Elon Musk taking over Twitter being like, wow, China, China's going to have influence over this platform. Like, have you looked at the other platforms? Like, like every major tech platform is far more entangled in China than Twitter currently is. Twitter apparently had a, a large stake owned by the Saudis, which we all learned uh, in the in the unfolding of this purchase. But I think it's a completely fair question to ask Elon Musk, but I think it has to then kick off this broader conversation that we have about TikTok, right? An actual Chinese psyop. Uh, being run as a very popular social media outlet. It has to kick off a conversation about Google and its willingness to, you know, put an AI office in Beijing while, you know, refusing to work with the American government. We have to have a conversation about Apple. So I do think that like, you know, all these, it, none of what Elon Musk is doing happens in a vacuum. 
Um, and that is transparently clear. But I do think on very specific questions, it could have a, a useful domino effect that we begin to talk about how we do things on other platforms. And, you know, really could, you know, this is my probably most optimistic take today, but it actually could begin to change the nature of some of the social media landscape, um, how these companies engage with, with foreign actors, you know, all these things that we've been asking to, to, to talk about. Well, Elon Musk is going to open the door to those conversations, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, on the, the China aspect of things, I think we should hold two ideas in our hands at the same time. One is that, yes, Elon Musk has been, has essentially kowtowed to the Chinese Communist Party on business grounds, which is what our entire ruling class has done. So the backlash against him from these people is wholly disingenuous. If we're going to have this conversation, then we have to talk about basically every major bank, every major tech company, every company in every influential industry, media itself, of course, when you have newspapers that, again, run these inserts and take millions of dollars from CCP linked propaganda rags. So it would be great if they were actually genuine. They're disingenuous. It doesn't mean there's not legitimate questions for Elon Musk about the China ties and about how that impacts his thinking on speech and how it's going to impact how this platform is run. But I had sort of analogize it to like I mentioned before, the intelligence community people talking about, well, we have to look at big tech legislation from on national security grounds to compete with communist China, when of course, like all of these big tech companies themselves have dealings with communist China. Uh, and, and of course, the intelligence community leaders who are out there talking about this are the ones who have helped enable aid and abet and not predict it at all, communist China's rise in the first place. So you know, it's hypocrisy across the board here doesn't mean that Elon Musk shouldn't answer those questions. And it'll be really interesting to see how he does address those questions. Uh, one other point that I'll make, you know, I do think that the business questions on this are going to be interesting. Like Kat, could Musk make Twitter profitable would be an interesting thing to, to observe. You know, is he going to have some kind of tiering model? Obviously, Twitter's most devoted users who make up the vast majority of the tweeting and engagement on the platform, we're probably also addicted to it that, yeah, maybe we would pay for a subscription. It'll be interesting to see how he approaches that. And it will be interesting also to see how this takeover impacts other actors in the marketplace, like the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. And maybe it could have these really beneficial tangential and tertiary impacts. I think one early test of what his ownership will be like, and you know, he should be asked about this now, although I don't know that he would respond to it, is will you fire the current CEO of the company? Because the current CEO who was Jack Dorsey endorsed, and Jack Dorsey has come out very strongly in favor of Elon Musk's bid. And I think he even said that with Musk at the helm on the business side, and then the current CEO operating the company, that's a great tandem. I wonder what Musk makes of that, because it is very hard to square the so-called free speech absolutist sort of views of Musk with those of the CEO, who's basically said, that Twitter, and I think these are, this is a direct quote, I think from around 2018, the Twitter is about having a healthy public conversation, which of course is euphemism for censoring views that people like him don't like and people across Silicon Valley don't like. So will Elon Musk remove a CEO who presumably has a position on speech at loggerheads with Musk's? And then beyond that, are there personnel aligned with Musk who would work at a Musk-controlled Twitter if it really follows his philosophy. And I think, again, the analogy here is kind of strong between you know, a President Trump, in theory, taking over the federal bureaucracy, in practice, not so much. Do you have the personnel to actually go about executing on Musk's vision? 
I have faith in him running a private business that he will find those people, but it's going to be fascinating to see if he can, because Silicon Valley is probably equally as left or an analogous to the administrative state itself. So that's going to be a fascinating analog to witness in real time as well. And with that, I think it's time for parting shots. So if anyone wants to rattle off some thoughts, feel free. Yeah, I think that's my, you know, my final thought. The one aspect that I think we haven't really discussed, although you just touched on it, is like the personnel angle. I don't, you know, if Musk doesn't take a firm hand with the personnel at Twitter, nothing is going to change. Um, you know, he is notoriously, maybe infamously close to Jack Dorsey. Um, that's great, but Jack Dorsey was a failure as the CEO of Twitter. Um, he was bullied by his own company. He, you know, he may have free speech values, but he was not able to flex them. Um, the entire top tier at Twitter is sort of in the camp of the current CEO, Parag Agrawal, which as you've pointed out, he's basically said, my responsibility isn't to the first amendment. It's to whatever this, you know, healthy conversation is, which as we know, changes daily, the definition of what a healthy conversation looks like, which is completely defined by the left. Um, there is a, interestingly, an old episode of Joe Rogan, I think from 2019, where Jack Dorsey, uh, Tim Pool, and a, a woman named Vijaya Gade appear on Joe Rogan. And Gade is the sort of head of the health of the health and safety team. She's like the lead counsel at Twitter. And it becomes very clear in that episode that she's she's running the company, right? She's in charge of all these content moderation decisions. If she is not shown the door, uh, I, I don't really suspect anything at Twitter is going to change. So, and I don't know, I don't know anything about how Elon Musk runs his companies. I don't know how involved he is. I don't know, you know, he may have a plan for all of this. I don't, I, I frankly don't know, but you know, it's interesting. I was just looking, um, reading this morning that he's already, or at least someone has locked down Twitter's algorithm to limit uh, the role of activist employees in sort of making changes to it externally, which perhaps is why you're seeing more accounts back online. So if he's already taking those steps, that's a good sign. But again, you got a clean house at Twitter. And, and frankly, and I said this in the piece I wrote a couple of weeks ago, you have to move Twitter out of the Bay Area. Uh, because even if some of this content moderation isn't nefarious, you are literally hiring the same type of ideological person over and over and over again. <laughs> like move it out of the Bay Area, get some different people in there. That has always been a problem with content moderation when it comes exclusively from one ideological area of the country. So personnel is policy as with, you know, as in government, as in as in business. So remains to be seen. So I, I think this conversation about, about kind of personnel and Prague as CEO more specifically is the right question. So I'm happy Ben asked it. I think I actually, now that I think about it, I think I misspoke earlier in the podcast. I might have referred to Elon as the incoming CEO. So apologies for that. So this kind of is obviously a big question, but I actually want to use my final thoughts for something completely unrelated to any of this whatsoever. Sorry to cut you off, Emily, if you wanted to continue the Twitter conversation. That's totally fine here. Um, but I just want to touch briefly on a Supreme Court oral, oral argument that took place this week. Um, this is the Coach Kennedy case. So you might have heard about this case. This is the case out of Washington State. Joe Kennedy is a high school football coach. Um, he, he is a Christian who, um, after each game, goes, or at least he went to a 50-yard line in the middle of the playing field to pray and, and on an entirely voluntary basis. No one was compelled to do so whatsoever, just to kind of um, thank God for his uh, blessings that no one was hurt, that we're able to enjoy this great sport and, and all of that. Um, he was fired for for doing so because he you know putatively kind of you know violated the establishment clause, which allegedly speaks of separation of church and state. Um, hint hinted that it does no such thing. I'm actually working on an essay on that exactly right now. 
Um, so anyway, this tri this trickled throughout the courts for many, many years. It's been kind of up and down through the ranks. Back when I was of counsel at First Liberty Institute, kind of a religious liberty nonprofit law firm, this actually was our case. So I would come, I was intimately familiar with, with the details of this case. Um, oral arguments, from what I could tell, I don't think the transcript is out yet, so I haven't seen the full transcript. The write-ups make it seem like the justices were sympathetic. Um, this, is a, this is a big religious liberty case. Religious liberty cases take up a disproportionately high share of the Supreme Court docket every year, which is not a particularly healthy sign. The fact that people cont are continually fired and sued for very basic expressions of their faith, whether it's instances like the Joe Kennedy case out of Washington, whether it's cases like Jack Phillips, obviously, and the Masterpiece Cake Shop case in Denver, it is not a sign of a particularly healthy society. I think that, you know, religious Christians, Jews, just religious people in general are sued for kind of publicly affirming the basic tenets of their faith and acting in accordance of that. So I think the Supreme Court has a real opportunity here to move First Amendment religious liberty jurisprudence in the right direction. We'll see if they do so. But from what I'm reading, based on what oral argument looked like. I guess I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll get a good ruling. Again, it's hard to be optimistic that they're going to make real doctrinal strides in the Establishment Clause area, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, and I don't think that's off topic at all because, uh, and actually Rachel has written about this or was tweeting about this, but like when our norms are, are when our culture is sick, that's when our institutions fail. And even the safeguards of our constitution that created the greatest system of government that's ever existed, it can exist on this base where you, you're you going to be harassed if you're Jack Phillips ceaselessly because of the culture for years and years and years, because there are cultural incentives. Of course, in the system, there's always been an ability to do that, but the threat from the culture um, that it would do that incessantly was not always there. Um, but sadly, that's where we are right now. And uh, you know, for all of the sort of policy conversations, um, at the end of the day, we have a really deep cultural problem that, po that, that policy solutions um, that norms, so like the norms that would be set downstream of antitrust action against Facebook or Twitter, great, those will help the culture. But um, there are, I think, super, super important avenues just in our own sort of private existences. Um, and in terms of, you know, having a, a society that isn't so godless and secular um, and morally relative um, that, you know, the if we can at least get back to this norm of like the old ACLU topic on the old ACLU approach to free speech on one social media platform, maybe it's a, maybe it's a domino um, that affects other norms and shows people other norms are, are possible uh, to return to. And in fact, they are better for a healthy society. We'll see. Let's hope for that. I'll probably take the other side of that bet because I just think that we've crossed so many Rubicons at this point, but on the other hand, pendulums do swing in society. So uh, history, we'll, we'll look back at history, either uh, able to speak freely about it or not. Um, I just want to stick briefly with one more little tangent on this analog that I've been thinking through in real time on this episode of Twitter versus the deep state itself. And one of the things that you would do if you really wanted to upset the apple cart, probably the first thing you'd have to do, even before you get to, say, firing Prague as CEO, would be to expose the malfeasance that has existed to date. And Elon Musk has talked about opening up the algorithm. But one of the other things, and this was recommended, something akin to this by Jan Yekielek of Epic Times, and, and I would endorse this effort as well. He talked about the fact that after the breakup of the Soviet Union, the end of the communist regime, 
there that there was essentially an opening up of the books to the dossiers that were drafted on citizens by the ruling regime. One of the things that would be great for Elon Musk to do would be something analogous at Twitter, which would be to expose all of the malfeasance, the censorship, the corruption, the shadow banning, et cetera, to the light of day, to the public. I'm not sure it would be in the interest of uh, that company as a private entity necessarily to do that publicly, but I do think it would be in the public interest, which seems to be the theme of his bid to overtake the company and similar thing in government. If you were to take over as the commander in chief tomorrow, the first thing you have to do is expose the malfeasance. Then you go about meeting out justice. You wipe the slate clean in terms of the personnel, you bring in a whole new team. But I think it starts with, first of all, what was done wrong. And it'd be interesting to know, and I think we, you know, we clearly sense this. It'd be interesting to know, did Twitter personnel perjure themselves in any number of hearings in Washington, DC? Again, I don't know if we can expect Elon Musk to expose that sort of malfeasance and wrongdoing and potentially lawbreaking as well or not, but I do think it would certainly be in the public interest for sunlight to be shown on what has transpired within this company in recent years as it's gone from a free speech platform to a regime speech platform. So on that note, on behalf of Josh, Emily, and Rachel, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.